welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Do you want to drive a new Tesla or a Rivian truck or a Lucid Air with 500 mile battery? A new online raffle lets you win an EV dream car while helping the planet. Visit evraffle.org to win. Secan Action Fund uses all proceeds to promote clean energy. Visit evraffle.org. We're here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zach Shahan, CEO of Clean Technica. And joining us today is Roger Atkins, founder, CEO, everything of Electric Vehicles Outlook. Is that the best way to introduce you, Roger? I'm happy with any introduction in these days. I'm happy still to be here. So uh, yeah, that's all good. <laughs> so everybody should know you, but if they don't, could you give us a little bit of a, of a background on on your, your deep history in EVs and uh, up to today? And I think we've got about three hours for that. So no rush, you know. <laughs> no, let's try to, you can, I don't know how you can shorten it, but, you know, do, do whatever is your best elevator pitch of your, of your deep background up through today, which, yeah, it's, I know is very deep. So. Okay, I'm hurtling towards 40 years in automotive. I started as a car salesman. Let me slice it in half. You know, 20 years of that has been in traditional auto industry, one way or the other. The last 20 years have been in and around electric vehicles. And that began with London taxis. I had a hybrid taxi. Then it was uh, an electric truck called the Modec. With, interestingly, an LFP battery way back there in 2007. I then worked for Ricardo, which is a pretty smart blue chip engineering consultancy company. God knows how I got to do that because I'm not an engineer, I'm not an academic, I'm not a scientist or anything clever. But somehow I did that for a few years and that stood me in good stead, to be frank. And for the last nearly nine years, I've worked for myself, where basically I help people with a bit of consulting, if you like. I'm the board of advisor on a number of companies, so I get into this and that. Uh, electric aviation being one thing, processing graphite being another thing. Big fan of battery swapping, big fat fan of wireless charging. And now very focused on mining, mineral processing from a few years ago where I met a chap called Simon Moores. And that really gave me a new chapter, if you like, in my storytelling, which was very much about the material world. So there you go. That was less than three hours, wasn't it? Yeah, that was very good. And uh, I was proud to know a lot of that. But it's actually funny because I think the last time you were on Clean Tech Talk was soon after that that EV battery mineral conference with... This is going to be a moment for me. I'm going to give some context here. So with with uh, Simon and others, you were, I, I think, a, a moderator or something at this uh, battery event. I think I did a couple of things. Yeah. So well, I, I yeah, don't know. So I, yeah, I don't. I'm, we might be mixing, but I remember you went to a battery conference, battery mineral conference, and not long after you were on our podcast, and you were sort of, you know, giving me the the wake up call pitch, kind of like you know, we had we had met, we had both been at the Revolution Conference in Amsterdam in 2017, I think, or 16, EV Box Conference in Amsterdam. And we had talked about, you know, all of the, you know, kind of adoption tr- curves and disruptive technology and all this. And we were very bullish on how fast the EV adoption curve could 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 come about, how much, how fast we could, you know, basically switch to EVs. And you were like, you know, after that mineral conference and talking to Mr. Lithium, uh, you're like, Zach, listen, <laughs> I know you know me we're like you know i'm we're we're of the same mindset revolutionary you know tech all this stuff but the the battery minerals are going to be a bottleneck the lithium is going to be a bottleneck and you gave me i think the first real wake up call on you know it takes 5 to 7 years at least for a battery for a lithium mine to get built you need really investment early on that no one was giving to to do this and that's just the lithium then you got to get you know make the cells and the packs and get them into uh, new electric car models and there's just it's such a long such a difficult long pipeline that there were a lot of people in the lithium industry ra- raising yellow flags and like calling for help and you were one of the first like i think very big ev influencers 
who I think was was on to this and, and bring it to my attention. And then for years since, I've had conversation after conversation on exactly this topic, always the same thing as we talked about the first time. And, you know, talking with one battery expert, one mineral expert after another, and it's always the same kind of perspective. So I would just like to, I guess, you know, people can ref can even go back and listen to that first podcast. We, I mean, that podcast we did on that, you know, several years ago or a few years ago. But maybe just give me an update now on how your view on the industry has changed in the past three years or so. As basically, since that sort of wake up call conference that you went to, how has how has your perspective on it evolved since then, or has it basically been the same as it was last time we talked? No, I, I'd say it's changed dramatically for like it always is the meeting of a number of people. So a few significant people I'd give a shout out to. One certainly and quite recently being Bob Gallion. Bob Gallion, the former CTO of CATL. His storytelling of his journey in joining Robinson. Just one moment. Just CATL is the largest battery maker in the world. Chinese battery production company that's a few years ago became the largest in the world. And now it's clear head and shoulders above the rest. So former CTO of that battery giants. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And the intriguing thing here is Bob Gallion is a former, well, as a GM veteran. He was a GM for certainly more than 20 years. And then he meets Robin Zeng in Cupertino, California, and they, they, you know, join forces. And this is a very intriguing story. And I think a story of our times in that a very interesting, smart American boy. Okay, he was an, he was a bit older than a boy, meets this interesting Chinese entrepreneur. And they team up and you get the best of America with the best of China and all that comes out of that. And Bob was really explaining to me about how, you know, the focus of that company right from the beginning was to understand the big picture, to look at the whole thing. What do they say in America from soup to nuts? So, of course, supply chain is a fundamental to that. Where are the minerals? Where is the mining? How do you process the minerals when you've got them out of the ground? So that's been quite a revelation spending time with Bob and listening to that story of how CATL came about. And again, another intriguing part of that story is that it's not all about massive state intervention of the People's Republic of China, you know, the PRC. This is about some very simple fundamentals. Have a plan, know who's in charge and get on with it. And Bob was constructively critical i think of europe and america um, maybe until recently sort of inflation reduction act has changed a lot of things in that you know he, he said this is what the chinese do they get on with stuff they do they, it's about execution it's not about you know consultation all the time never-ending meetings and reviews and papers and you know calls for all, all of this stuff it's just get on with it so that's that's been a big thing of course, the Inflation Reduction Act has come along well since yeah, after we, we spoke, and yeah, that's we can, massive. We we'll can talk come about. Back to, I think we'll probably focus on that a bit later on too. But I mean, it's, yeah. it's something that I think, yeah, yeah. And and then another. I'm not a book agent, and I'm not under any commission for pitching a book to your listeners, Zach. But there's a massively important book, a good book too, called Material World by Ed Conway. Ed Conway is uh, an economist, as it happens, not a geologist, but he spent three years going around the world, basically compiling a book, which is the history of civilization. How has the world become what it is in history? Where is it today and where does it go into the future? And that's predicated on digging stuff up. And, you know, the narrative in his book is massively interesting and important, as as I mentioned. You know, and an obvious statement perhaps to make is that Cobalt mines weren't invented to make electric cars. Cobalt mining has been an activity for decades, many, many decades. And that cobalt has gone in the very thing you and I'm looking at you at now in this mobile phone. So much of our technology and many other things in the traditional car industry. But of course, a lot of the negative narrative around mining, and I'm certainly not advocating children in mines with artisanal mining, who is? Nonetheless, it's curious that all the while that went on for all these other things, no one seemed to bat an eyelid. But then when it's about electric vehicles, that then gets fed into the 
these things aren't all they're cracked up to be. Look at what we've got to do. Well, mining is another thing of extraction. An extraction of oil out of the ground has changed, absolutely changed, you know, the 20th century. As we know, it still, still changes the 21st century. But this new world, these new minerals, certainly lithium, and then you're into copper, of course, manganese, yes, cobalt, but less so cobalt now, because when I read in my intro, I mentioned LFP. And I remember, even though I wasn't a chemist or anything at the time, it being explained to me, look, LFP, no C. That means there's no cobalt. There's no nickel in it either. And now, given that that is the chemistry of choice for millions of electric vehicles now, we're not taking that cobalt from the people's, you know, from the Democratic Republic of Congo. So, yeah, that book, The Conversation with Bob Gallion, and then recently went on a field trip to Serbia to look at a lithium mine, a lithium and a borates mine. I'd never even heard of borates until recently. Didn't know what it was. But it's a fundamentally important resource that's only found currently and only mined currently in two places in the world, Death Valley and Turkey. So this resource in Serbia is potentially incredibly important for lots of reasons to do with many other things other than electric vehicles, but but the lithium's there too. So yeah, I've been I've been busy. I've been out and about with people, and as people I've mentioned that I I definitely I'm learning a lot from. Hello, listeners. My name is Scott Cooney, and I am Zach's business partner. I'm the founder of Clean Technica, and I am so so grateful to all of you avid clean tech fans out there. We are thrilled to have been accelerating the clean tech revolution for more than a decade now, and really that all starts with you. The decisions you make and your companies make are driving this revolution. I'm most happy to be able to say that if we at Clean Technica had a nickel for every time we heard someone say that they purchased their first solar, their first EV, their first e-bike, or some other clean technology because of something they read on our website, Clean Technica would have enough money to be a cable TV channel by now. But the thing is, we don't get those nickels, and as a result, our ability to move markets only goes so far. So I have a favor to ask. If you love what we do, and you feel that we're helping move the world to a better future, could you chip in a monthly contribution of 5 bucks? 10 bucks, or whatever you can. If even 1% of our audience chipped in $5 a month, we could really blow this thing up and move markets. So if you feel motivated and can spare the cost of one cup of coffee a month, please go to cleantechnica.com support and sign up through either PayPal or Patreon. Again, that's cleantechnica.com support. Thanks so much. I've got so many questions and topics I want to get into with you. So I have to narrow them or we have to do a second podcast to fit them all in. But one is, you know, I understand that in the past few years, you've spent a lot of time going to different battery factories, mining sites, like you just mentioned. What are, maybe just pull out like three or four like like top uh, field trips you've gone on that have really, you found really interesting or, or eye-opening, eye, eye you know? Yeah, I, I think, well, close to home, well, literally in the UK here, we have a facility called the Battery Industrialization Centre. Uh, the BIC, the UK BIC. It is a battery factory. It's not a giga factory because, of course, giga means the scale at which you're making batteries to the volume of um, gigawatt production. So we have megawatt factories here. But but the Battery Industrialization Centre is where they illustrate and show people how we can make batteries. They have the full facility there to make anode and cathode material and to process, uh, not process it, but to assemble the batteries into cylindrical or pouch cells. And yeah, that's that's been a real eye-opener. And the other part of that that's very good is it's open to everybody. It's not a kind of, you know, secret facility in the UK just for the UK. It's the first of its kind in the world. And one of the other things they focus on there is training and development. Because one of the, if you like, if I can put it on this, raw materials that we're going to be considerably short of, but we know we are and we've got time to, to start managing it, is, is talent. Is, is to have amazing people. All of these gigafactories, the 30 or so in America, the 30 or so in Europe, the many that, of course, are already in China and in other countries, certainly South Korea, Japan too, and increasingly other places, but curiously not Africa and curiously not Australia and South America, where all the minerals, where all the raw materials are, which is weird. I actually just and- wrote before this an article about Benchmark Mineral Intelligence, a new report from them saying that they expect uh, like a tenfold increase in lithium coming from Africa in the next decade, a little decline in cobalt, 
but going from about 4% to 12% of the global lithium market. And they also point out that a couple of countries have tried to ban exporting the raw materials, trying to force processing in the country. But there's a question of whether that's, well, I mean, the argument, there's a question of whether that's uh, violates world. I mean, it seems to violate world trade organization rules that you can't outlaw exporting something and especially just to try to force more activity in your country. And there's a case like where Indonesia did this with iron ore and EU said that's illegal. This breaks WTO rules. And it was ruled that, that that's true. But now Indonesia has appealed and there's no appeal board operating at the moment. So everything is on pause. <laughs> but but it's so so it's an interesting it's interesting that you bring up Africa just because I, I just wrote about that benchmark mineral intelligence, Simon Moore, uh, come, you know, people we highly regard. Uh, and you turned me on yeah. to them as well. I think. Or maybe it was Max, one of our writers, Max Holland may have turned me on to him first. I'm not sure. Right. And, and then another one I would cite is the visit. And again, quite recently, a lot of this stuff has been the last six months or so um, to uh, to Detroit, to our next energy or abbreviated to one. This is the company that came to attention because it's only been around three years, came to everyone's attention because they drove a Tesla Model S 735 miles on a single charge. And they didn't drive it slowly or round a track or something. They actually went out in the roads in, in Michigan, and that's what they did. And this is run by an extraordinary individual, an entrepreneur that I think is equal to, in many ways, his thinking, his execution. He's got a great personality, absolutely, at Mujib Ijaz. And they are building a very fascinating battery business. So the one of the fundamentals that they're tackling is to blend two different types of battery chemistry together. In other words, have a hybrid battery, for want of a better phrase, which means that you've got high energy density and low energy density in the same pack using different chemistries. And the reason why you might want to do that is because people say, oh, yes, but on occasion I want to go 600 miles. But the truth is that they rarely go on 600 miles, but sometimes they do. If you put in the chemistry that can deliver that, the downside of that chemistry is it has a lower cycle life. In other words, you know, 500 or 1,000 life cycles or, or whatever. But you're not going to use that very often. You're only going to do that maybe two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times a year, 10 times a year. But, you know, th that that would last you a decade, maybe, or something like that. Fascinating. I mean, don't, don't quote those numbers. Oh, yeah, yeah, such, you know. But this is the absolute principle. But then, Get ready then the for other part. An SEC lawsuit, Roger. I'm just yeah, kidding. indeed. <laughs> Thank but then the other part of the chemistry is going to give you long cycle life, but lower range. But that's what most people are going to use, the lower range, the, you know, 50, 100, 150 mile, 200 mile. So it's just a really smart and actually, in principle, very simple approach to saying, give the customer what they want and put two types of chemistries in with two different capabilities and, and deliver it in that fashion. So that's one type of battery they yeah, do. That's a fascinating uh, approach. Genius. I mean, everyone who's so, followed the industry for a while, they know the original range extended electric vehicles, the Chevy Volt, the BMW i3 with the Rex. We had the i3 with the Rex with 70 miles of electric range, which covered almost everything and used about $5 of gas in nine months for extra. So it's just a perfect kind of example of, you know, exactly what you're saying, but it would be, everyone would much rather have that extra needed range fulfilled by a high energy density battery rather than a gas tank, right? I mean, most people, yeah. are just, they don't want another gas tank in a car. So it's a fascinating idea. I had I wasn't aware of that. So great to bring it up. And it's also just like if they could really make that work, like what can beat that really? That is that is that seems like the best approach, right? For mo most applicants, most now, drivers. They are making it work and they have their own secret source. They have their own chemistry, which I asked Mujib about. We did a walk and talk. He was really very open. But of course, like all companies, there are certain things that they're not going to tell everybody about. And one of those was, well, what is this chemistry in, in one of the battery propositions they've got? But to take this conversation full circle, I said to him, what's what's your ultimate objective in all of this? I'm, I'm keen whenever I meet somebody like Majeet to say, you know, why are you doing any of this? Where do you actually ultimately want to go? And I'm hoping the answer isn't, it isn't oh, I just want to get rich, make a stinking amount of money and like go and live in, you know, 
Bermuda. Um, and I hope they're and, smart enough. Even if that is their goal, they're not going to say that. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. yeah, maybe. But but here's what he wants to do ultimately, and he's working towards this. And so his is so is the team to deliver um, ubiquitous, relatively cheap, well, deep, reliable energy across the African continent. That's his big plan. He sees Africa as being the ultimate location for liberating so many things. He, and he's quite right to see it this way, this is where the growing population of the world is. Five of the biggest nations with population growth are African nations. And that given that so much of the raw material comes out of there, we owe them. You know, we owe the world owes Africa and we all know the history, you know, imperial history, the history of empire, the British one and many others. You know, it's all been about exploitation. Now, there's not a balance sheet as such. Perhaps there should be, but there isn't. But sometimes there is an elegant way in which things do kind of turn full circle. And that's Mujib's big ambition and plan. And I'm pretty confident he's going to deliver on it. So he's he's so a special person. So then is there a big stationary energy storage element to that for him? Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually... yeah. Because here in the US, he's already partnering with Berkshire Hathaway, which is a big organization. You know that. Berkshire, um, as we would say, as a, just to make sure everyone caught the pronunciation there. Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. So he's already working in exactly this regard to, to bring together renewable energy, energy storage, and battery manufacture. You know, if you think about it, the, the two big kind of moves on the planet now in terms of change, fundamental change, are on the one side with electric mobility and on the other side with renewables and with the battery in the middle. And it, I suppose it's inevitable then that somebody then who's in the middle of that uh, that epoch, that epoch, you know, time that we're, we're at, um, is going to look on either side, is going to look at energy storage and electric mobility. Of course they are. And, and think about what the Chinese have always called EVs, new energy vehicles. Yeah. It wasn't an act. Yeah. It's actually funny because the interview I just did for the podcast yesterday, which we'll actually publish after yours, I think, was with Electrician Sans Borders, which is a French nonprofit that is bringing electricity to a lot more people in Africa, African countries elsewhere as well, but, uh, but focused on several African countries right now. I think a hundred live projects it was or more, but you know, they, the focus is on bringing it with clean, renewable solar energy, but then you also, also got to the point of, you know, batteries, the <laughs> batteries are critical to this, to this as well, of course. So it's uh, the kind of continued evolution of batteries is sort of the hot element that makes it more and more possible for more and more people, as well as with, you know, the dropping cost of solar, but solar is at a later phase of development, sort of, you know, batteries have more, a lot more room for for uh, evolution in the next few years, I think. But yeah, I yeah. mean, just I, everything seems to bring come back to these this circle, as you say. So you got EVs, renewables, and batteries connecting everything. Well, I want to go back. Have we covered all the uh, sites site visits that I or did, or did you have more one one or two more that you wanted to mention? I'm not. I don't want to. I've got some coming up, actually, uh, over the next few months. I'm going to Blue Solutions, a Bellore facility in northern France, where they're making and have been making for, for some time solid state batteries. And I'm very curious about that because that's been in some electric buses for some time. And, of course, you know, that kind of feels, you know, that contrary to, well, hang on, I didn't think we'd cracked solid state batteries yet. So mm -hmm. I'm very, very keen to go and report on that one. I'll be going to Freya up in um, Moirana in Norway as well, yeah. probably towards the end of the year. We've had them on the podcast this year, I think, Freya Battery. Great yep. stuff, really impressive. And they just uh, just had some news we, we reported on as well with, uh, I think, Giga yep. Arctic, it's called. Yeah, and then and then a French company called Fecor, V-E-R-K-O-R, very interesting company. And there's a cluster of gigafactories going into northern France around where they've got existing industrial facilities. And they're going to use the the heat, the waste heat from the, the industrial facilities. And they're huge to actually help help power up these gigafactories because the fundamentals of the gigafactories are lots 
lots, but let's take it as three things. A ton of energy to make them work, fire them up. So they need as much of that as possible, as much of it to be clean and as much of it to be cheap as possible. That's the first thing. Second thing is they need access to raw materials. We've talked about that a bit already. And the other thing which doesn't get the attention it should get, again, we have briefly referenced this already, is talent. It is, is where are the people who are going to work in them from? Because each of them typically needs anything between three and 5,000 people working in them. You know, I, I don't know, and perhaps you know, where do they find all the people to work in, in Nevada? I mean, Reno's not a small place, oh. but it's not massive. Oh, well, they I bust them all. I can tell you 100% that's been one of Tesla's biggest bottlenecks for years uh, is human talent, both for things like, yeah, they ran into that problem in Nevada. That's why they're not expanding more there because there's a it's very difficult to get enough people there to work in their yeah. factories and uh, and have this expertise that's why they they set up a bigger one in austin now there's a, you know and and even that was you know and, and there was a discussion be, between i don't know how much i can say because i had a lot of dms with elon back in the day before we had a kind of split we can say uh he stopped <laughs> anyway what but, hang on whoa, whoa, whoa. don't get any further what happened well, I mean, let's just say he became unhappy with some of the stuff we were writing, and he also got more and more distracted with, let's say, a very odd, extraneous, extracurricular topics and activities that sort of uh, pulled him away from the core Tesla mission, I think. But back, you know, I would say from many DMs with him, and then also with other companies, I think human talent at all levels is the biggest, is perhaps the biggest bottleneck, whether that's the high, high software engineer tech level working on autonomous driving or factory worker at, at a battery gigafactory level or electrician installing EV charging stations level. Like it's all, all levels. The growth is so rapid that there's a bit of, that there's a, there's a supply gap on the human worker side. But yeah, I mean, that was, a, that's, that is a problem in Nevada and it's probably anywhere where a big gigafactory goes in because I mean, you need a lot of people and where they're just not going to grow on trees nearby, you know, you have to get them. But, but Tesla has worked for, for years with um, a college in Austin, near Austin to work on, to, to help with this for their gigafactory that's being developed in Austin still. But yeah, to come back to um, the topic, I hope we will get field reports from you on all of those. Uh, we're expecting, <laughs> no, we have to figure out some kind of collaboration because these are amazing uh, opportunities and, and I'm sure you're going to have a lot out of them. So we'll have to figure out something to be more regular and get uh, your insights. But I want to... I do want to return. I I think it's funny to just you know five five uh, or wait no this was seven seven years ago when we were meeting in Amsterdam we didn't really talk much about batteries of course batteries we talked about them a little bit but it was all about EV adoption electric cars and it's funny how how much we've shifted to a battery focus and that's just the the nature of the industry and the and the process right now but I want to come back to the issue of supply because. I still, yeah, I, still, I want to get your take from from everything you've seen and, and people you've talked to. You're really on the cutting edge of what's innovative in the EV, EV battery sector. But there was there was always the, the matter of you need a lot of investment to have enough battery mineral supply by 2030 for the potential customer demand. And since we talked about that, you know, the European EV market has exploded. The Chinese EV market has exploded. They've gone from like 6% EV market share to like 20% of the of new car sales being electric cars in, in these markets. The US has climbed a little bit, you know, it's up to like se above 7% perhaps. But it's really, Europe made automakers try. And after they forced them to try, it became clear to everybody, people want electric cars. <laughs> and people bought electric cars, and they're now buying more and more. And, and, and there's no stopping that. And I think every automaker on the planet, maybe even Toyota, realizes that at this point. And and the question is, though, are they going to have enough batteries for the demand their customers will want in 2030, in 2027, even in, in 2035, even? But, you know, sort of focusing on that 2030 time frame. What's your take on that? Has there been enough awareness raising, enough investment? Is stuff evolving and, and innovating fast enough that the, the mineral supplies will be there? Or do you think there's still a kind of need for a yellow flag? Everybody 
raise the, you know, turn on the alarms. We got to wake more people up to get this happening. Right. There is a great raw materials disconnect and it isn't getting fixed anytime soon by the looks of things, because I think there is not the proper understanding uh, from automotive execs at the senior level, nor from many people in government around the world, just in terms of the gestation of a mine. Well, let's even go back to geology. The geology has to tell you where the stuff is and then has to, you know, and I, I've been in a, I'm not sure what it's called, a sort of sample warehouse, warehouse or rock warehouse or something. This is what I went into in um, Serbia. Oh, my God, what an eye opener. So these big tubes that go, they drill right down into the ground to get, get the sample out, to get this long tubular sample out, to look at what's in it at different levels, and it goes right down deep. To, to then map out, you know, the resource, the what whatever it is that they've got there, and they can they can see that is, and they do that thousands and thousands and thousands of times. It takes years. It's a very labor intensive, capital intensive process with no absolute guarantee of a real payback. So, typically, this is done by very big companies like BHP Billiton, like uh, Rio Tinto, you know, really big global companies. But for example, the people at Euro Lithium and Borates, it's a it's a Czech born Canadian entrepreneur who made a lot of money developing stuff to do with uh, glass and, and other things. And he's put all of his resource and effort into realizing this particular resource in, in Serbia. But that's now bumping into political challenge. This has happened with Rio Tinto with another resource in the same same country in Serbia. But we're just not seeing the licensing process. We're not seeing the money inflows coming in from the capital markets because, of course, they see it as quite a long term. Well, it is a long term risk. A lot of capital money, a lot of investment money comes into propositions and has for many years where you're looking, say, for three, five, 10, 20 times payback if you're really lucky. And you're probably looking over a timeline between three, four, five, seven years. That ain't mining. That's not what mining is about. And you can't help coming to a conclusion that because of that fact, and let's take a gigafactory, the build of a gigafactory takes anything between two and five years. And then once you've got the output, will the demand be there? We've been saying it will be, but let's say we don't know. So it's a, it is an unknown. And we can, so if you're we can acknowledge that automakers and even battery producers often don't feel comfortable enough you know, we can say easily, uh, keyboard warriors, of course, the demand will be there. But when you're putting billions on the line, you have to think, will it really be there? Will we really have the demand for that? We don't know, because this is uncharted territory. But also, well, indeed, what yeah, you we said, haven't been there, I mean, those gigafactories are for the cells and the packs. So this is, you know, not, yeah, even not even the upstream supply chain, just the gigafactory itself is anything between if it's a gigafactory looking to produce 20, 30, 40, 50, you know, gigawatts of output every year year in year out you're looking at anything between three three and five billion dollars you know a pop and and a few so, years so, and yeah so, so the, exactly with no guarantee of the payback so the conclusion i've come to and i might be wrong i'm not saying i know this for a fact but my observation stroke conclusion is that given that so much of the power and energy and investment in batteries and the raw material supply chain has come from China, it's because it's come from state intervention, because that's the only way to make it happen. If you leave it to the market, the market gets nervous, doesn't see the return guarantee, and possibly backs off. And, yeah. and now to fill that void is the Inflation Reduction Act from the United States to say, okay, here are the billions, here are the billions. They're only doing what China's done for the last decade. Yep. And then in Europe, the OEMs are opening up their war chests and saying, OK, well, I suppose we've got no choice. They're then, first of all, saying we're going to build three, four, five gigafactories. That's what we're going to do. And they're like, OK, we can afford that. How much is that? Well, that's like, say, three, three billion a pop. So that's 15 billion, 20 billion or something. But then you've got the raw material. You're then looking at investing in either buying mines or investing in, in mines so you can secure your supply chain. And maybe if you secure your supply chain, just like Henry Ford did back in the day, you can then get a price fix on it. So you'll know 
you know in terms of this volatility of pricing because look at lithium lithium went up between a three-year period like a thousand percent you know it went up hugely and and so that volatility of supply of price if you're if you're looking at getting that vertical integration you're assuring your supply just like henry ford did back in the day and just like elon's been doing now for many years and if it's much more internal you're you're less reliant on the externalities of things and you know you, you you've got some assurance yeah i mean to be frank and simplistic why people don't just watch and copy what tesla are doing because they're because what elon's doing and <clears throat> when i talked to bob gallion from catl about this he agreed this is the henry ford playbook vertically integrate so you so you can secure supply you capture margin and you know all the rest of it the one bit that elon's doing that that henry ford got wrong was he didn't buy standard oil he didn't buy the charging infrastructure the fueling infrastructure the petrol yeah. stations well just imagine if he it's funny the ford references because in recent months actually ceo of ford jim farley has talked about becoming more vertically integrated again and i think i think clearly the covid pandemic and the the russian invasion of ukraine have in, have encouraged the auto sector and other sectors to vertically integrate more and have more regional supply because of the disruptions that occurred as a result yeah. of those things. So, so it's all, all factors, but also, I mean, already Tesla's vertical integration was famous for years going into those. And it's, well, it's funny too, because I mean, Elon uh, with the Twitter of a bought Twitter with a valuation of like $43 billion at a time when he was pleading with people to, to, to build more lithium mines. It's like pr printing yeah. cash. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, well, you're going to spend your money on Twitter <laughs> and you could be doing this. And it's like, we'll do it if we have to. But I think that the thing, per perhaps a kind of problem with Tesla right now is they get the priority because they do the work ahead of others and they have the obvious supply, you know, demand. So, so I think they get enough contracts with the cattles and the, and the others of the world that they are not forced to, to do as much vertical integration as Elon and, and crew would be willing to do if they felt they needed to. And they don't want to, expand into too many arenas i guess but but you know it's easy to say it's like printing money but the i mean that's a whole different podcast just to talk about all the risks of you know you've you've touched on some of them but you know there's a lot more we could say about the risks of developing investing in a mine many of them will not come to fruition many of them will not produce what is expected and i even wonder at this point with company with automakers getting more integrated and, and having all these joint ventures with battery companies to build gigafactories how much their supply of raw materials is really guaranteed. They have to think it's guaranteed to build these gigafactories, but is there going to be a point where the where there's like a crash, where it's like, oh, too much has been promised that isn't, isn't being mined yet? Or, yeah, we thought we had a supply for lithium and graphite, but we have a problem because of this or that. So I, I'm, I'm a little concerned about it not being, you know, that the automakers partner with the battery producers to build battery cell and pack gigafactories. But how deep is that integration going to really make sure that those battery gigafactories are going to uh, have their own return on investment that are going to produce what they're expected to produce. So we'll yeah. see, but yeah, getting, there was another avenue I wanted to go down that you touched that you were touching on, but um, I have to come back to it. But yeah, <laughs> I lost my train of thought for a second there, but uh, the, but as far as well, the uh go ahead yeah let, let me help you so here's the thing about working towards a global electric vehicle fleet whatever that becomes and however long that takes so on the one side you've got the battery which will deliver the range of course it will that's what an ev is has a battery in and where it goes on the other side you've got the infrastructure the charging infrastructure and one of the beliefs that i've held which i'm sure i'm in good company i'm sure lots of other people have got it is that if you do a little bit of modeling on that and say, what would the most efficient thing be? Efficient in terms of natural resources, efficient in terms of money, efficient in terms of time. And my conclusion is surely having range in a ubiquitous, reliable charging infrastructure is a much more efficient way of going than having tons of 60, you know, kilowatt battery packs, 80 yeah. kilowatt battery packs. Wow. There's always been an uh, argument people have made really well. It's not... I think it was even an old writer of ours, Nicholas Brown, who used to be intent on saying this. It's not, a, it's not about how much range you have in your battery. It's about how how much range you need to the next charge, and you know, optimizing the ubiquity of of charging and the potential of charging with 
the size of battery packs so that you're not i mean the, the bigger the battery packs the harder it is to electrify everything obviously yeah yeah it, it is and, and and i felt there was uh the beginning certainly of that storytelling from rebecca tanucci who did the quarter one tesla investor day presentation it was a masterclass. it was no more than i don't know seven eight minutes it was the story of the supercharger proposition it was explaining how they did it, why they did it, what sort of stuff they do to make it more efficient. You know, some of the real minutia of how they make this stuff happen. And she wrapped it up by alluding to, well, you know, Tesla have done all this kind of boring, dull, but important stuff. And we also like to do cool shit. And there's a picture of a Tesla with a wireless charger pad underneath it. Watch this space, Zach. Yeah, well, so, we definitely... I, we have to reconnect in the next couple of weeks to talk charging because I wanted to talk about GridServe, which we talked about last time as well. They've got news at Porsche Charging Lounge, which we just wrote about, so, and wireless charging. So these are we have to reconnect for, I think, just do two episodes in a row or something or, or two this month or something to come back to charging. But there, the three yeah. things I, re I remember, the three things I wanted to, to come back to on the battery front, which was one is... Yeah, China has clearly led with solid planning, vision, and implementation. And we've we've referenced many times the kind of I think benchmark mineral intelligence or someone else highlighted this first and we jumped on it was 60 to 100 percent of battery minerals in EVs are produced in China or processed or at least in China. So 60% of the world's lithium for EV EV batteries, 100 percent of the synthetic graphite is processed in China. But also China accounts for most of the EV market. So, so it's something that we sort of forget about. It's like, yeah, they, they're dominating the space, but also they dominate sell, producing and selling electric cars. They produce more than half of the world's electric cars and sell them in the Chinese market. So it's also like it's a, you know, it matches. So, you know, to, to scale up EV production and sales in other parts of the world, you need to scale up the battery production as well. And, and the Inflation Reduction Act really a stunning piece of legislation i don't think anyone really thought would ever happen like i mean even when joe biden was elected and we had democrats running congress it was a it was a big dream to expect something like this coming into law like this is a big this is the strongest climate legislation in in history of the country and it has changed the global market on ev battery production and i've i think it was interviewing the friar battery ceo when he was saying that in Europe, they call it the the, the Biden climate bill, I think he said. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's the Inflation Reduction Act, but in Europe is broadly known as the climate, the Biden climate bill, because it's such a strong uh, bill on climate action. And the funny thing is, it's just it's really incentivized so much battery production in the US for the first time, like really st so strongly outside of China. And it's made Europe sort of get like a whoa, we got to wake up too now. I mean, we just reported today on Porsche deciding to build a battery gig factory in North America instead of Germany. No doubt the Inflation Reduction Act is part, uh, I mean, it's not clear if they're going to go to Canada for cheaper electricity or the U.S. for IRA subsidies, but probably I would I would bet on, you know, the second. And it's just, it's pushed the, the Europe now to say, hey, how do we stop losing these battery gig factories that were supposed to be built in Europe, but are now going to the, to the U.S. because of the IRA? And so I'm curious what you've heard, you're Brit, you mostly, you know, travel in Europe, I think, although I know you're all over the place. What have you heard about movements from the EU front to kind of respond to the IRA and and try to stimulate more EV battery production in, in Europe? Good question. And, and let, me just, question. let me just, in case anyone doesn't know. So the, the big reason on the battery front, aside from in, uh, incentives for consumers, is that battery, that you can get subsidies in the US through the IRA for mining them the raw materials separately for producing the battery cells separately for produce uh, separately for processing the materials separately for producing the battery cells and separately pr for producing the battery packs so you can get subsidies at four stages of the battery production process and it's really you know it's moving more and more stuff to the us because of that yeah yes i mean so okay whatever we want to call it this is this initiative to Let's let's put it like this to kind of make America great again in terms of being an industrial 
heartland being a place that is at the you know core of a lot of what's the engine of the world in, in many aspects as of course it has been at various times in history for all sorts of interesting reasons so what am i hearing about europe well let's not forget despite what the people that voted for brexit call it it is not a united states of, of europe it is the european union of individual countries with, with you know their own with their own nationality with their own sort of it's not like a, it's not a united states of of europe so no, that's as someone one who lived in europe for 11 years and is american it's very different there's still way uh, more uh, independence and yeah yeah, you, you, you get it. And therefore, it's difficult to have the same kind of legislation and the same kind of budget, because the challenge there is, you know, there are so many different countries at different states of you know economic development within Europe. If you have an Inflation Reduction Act, let's say we had exactly the same thing here in Europe, and you were then building battery factories in Germany, in France, in, in many UK, well, not no. Not the UK anymore, of course. <laughs> Oops. And in many of these other countries, what about the smaller places? They'd say, well, where's our slice of the pie? If you're spending our money, our collective money, what are we getting in this? I mean, I'd be curious to understand in America how the states that aren't getting any investment, any value out of this feel about this. Because, of course, you know, industry is where it is. We go back to the workers thing. The workers are where they are. And... Yeah, California is the big successful place, et cetera. Well, well the, the battery fact, I mean, the, the, this kind of stuff is often in red states, in, in southern red states, which, you know, it's ironic. It's a, it's purely, you know, actually a lot of Republican politicians take credit for stuff that's funded through it, even though they voted <laughs> against it. And it wouldn't have come into law if it wasn't for Democrats controlling everything. So it's, it's ironic. It's funny. I think, you know, people in, you know, Democrats who realize it are just happy for it. They are happy that it's helping uh, these states and these people as well. I'm not sure how much it's really understood outside of, yeah, I don't know. How, I mean, it's very hard. A lot of surveys would be interesting to do on this, but, but, you know, it's often like sort of these places that are getting the most benefit from it. And it's ironic. And I don't even know what to think or say about that, <laughs> but, but, yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, well, Europe has a lot. I don't know. We, we also just we don't think about a lot of stuff. We're, just, <laughs> we're not a very thoughtful. Uh, you know, people are not that engaged or thoughtful about this level of policy detail and, and what the effects are and uh, have very short memories, uh, as I, I think is the case in Europe as well. But there's a lot more. There's just a lot more that separates countries. So they remember things better that help are in their country or help their country or hurt their country. So I don't know. Yeah, look, we, we, we've got lots of historical dynamics to the way Europe is for all, all sorts of reasons. We've currently got this war at the moment, this whole friction between, you know, for a lot of people who've lived in Eastern Europe, you know, Poland, for example, not that long ago, you know, we had a very different complexion of, of Europe than the one we see today. So, it, it is it is complex, but I think the pro what's at the heart of this and what's so impressive about the IRA, uh, if I can call it that, is how quickly it's been put into operation, how Jigger Shah and his team, including our friend Chelsea Sexton and many other people, have produced the, 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 the administration of this and put it into action, put money into companies to say, there you go, put shovels in the ground start making things, hire people, make it happen. And I think what the big difference to answer your earlier question about what's happening in Europe is not enough. There's too much talking. We keep having meetings and discussions and policy documents. It goes right back to what Bob Gallion said about what's the difference with China. Well, from his experience back with uh, Robin Zeng and the formation of CATL, they look, observe, consult. Yes, they do. Of course they do. But then they have a plan, then they get on with it. You know, they get on with it. And what's been happening too much in the whole of Europe and including the UK as well, by the way, yeah. is too much empty from politicians. You know, we've had a bunch of clowns here saying, oh, the UK is going to be at the centre of the electric vehicle proposition. Well, that's good. We're very pleased to hear that. How? What? When? Where's the money? And so the difference here is that President Biden and, yeah, cross-party support said, OK, 
what's the plan? What do we need to do? Of course, they did some observation and consulting. It wasn't perfect because there are some flaws in the Inflation Reduction Act. It's very complicated. But nonetheless, they've got on with doing it. They're spending the money. People are getting jobs. People are being hired. Stuff's happening. Yeah, well, um, it was, actually, it was and, really straight down party lines. I mean, it was just that we Democrats controlled the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And even then, there were it was such a close, uh, it was, you know, such narrow control that a couple of, you know, conservative Democrats held up much hope for a long time. And I don't think many people hoped that this would actually happen, but they broke through, through, I would say more than a decade of negotiation of getting, of, of working on this, you know, it broke through. So it, it took, you know, years or decades of work to make it happen but then once it happened, the thing with the U.S. is very hard to then take it away. I mean, <laughs> you're not going it's, yeah. it's, to it's so it's not going to be taken away. So even right after it was passed, battery companies started making announcements and solar companies, too, and and started changing plans. And we had people telling us this like immediately, like long before it could even it was even be in the implementation stage. So it was it, it just showed how much people were watching and waiting and then saw, boom, it's happening. Let's go. And I mean, it is it is a question with Europe. Like, what can Europe do to respond? It doesn't have clearly the unilateral control of China, neither does the U.S. It doesn't even have the unilateral control of the U.S. But it also, it's always been a leader. I mean, the reason EV adoption is so high in Europe is because Europe led with regulations requiring it. And that's why we're still way behind in the US because we still can't implement anything close to what the EU has has implemented requiring you know greater fuel economy uh, among the auto fleets so i mean it's like what can they come up with through, but it's also it is very difficult because you have to find an agreement across so many parties and i think there wasn't such an you, there was a, a sort of feeling oh europe is leading behind china and nobody expected but, but let- nobody expected the US to leapfrog ahead I mean, we had Trump for for you. I mean, and so so it was a kind of a shock, I think, when it's like, oh wow, the U.S. just leapfrogged us. How are we going to deal with this? You know. But but let, let's just give it all a baseline for a minute. Is China an existential threat? Yes or no? And here's here's the problem. When the answer is yes, then the reaction is like the Inflation Reduction Act to try and catch up, to try and secure you know put some walls up borders up you know there's there's restrictive covenants or call them what you will about those supply chains you mentioned etc but the truth is the kind of gene is out the bottle Uh, and for me the big picture of tackling climate change especially that more that more than anything else means we need a paradigm shift in the global geopolitical thinking which is much more about collaboration yes we're always going to have competition we fight for resources. Humans have always done that. You know, if there's one bit of food and you're, you and I are running for it and I want to feed my family, I'll grab it off you. I'll fight yeah. you for it. You know, that's that's yeah. humanity. That's nature. That's Darwinian. But the point here is that given the complexity of the shift to renewable energy and electric mobility, it actually requires collaboration. And when you see companies now like Volkswagen, on the one hand, to some Germans, distressingly capitulating to the Chinese by uh, the investment in Xpeng, by Audi's further collaboration with SAIC, and seemingly to some people, and this has only happened this week, thinking, well, what the hell, you know, how the mighty fall, what's going on here? Mm-hmm. But the point is, China has taken such a lead that the we now need to collaborate with China because we can't compete with China. That's not being defeatist. It's yeah. being... No, I've got... I've got a lot to say, uh, but I put I put it into an article already about the announcement. So I, I just recommend reading my article on the uh, Volkswagen Xpeng uh, collaboration. But yeah, there's a lot to say there as well. I, so because we focus on batteries, uh, I want to conclude. I want to go back to something we 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 mentioned about with chemistries or just chemistries in general. Yeah. Because yeah, I th- back in the early days of EVs, we had the BYD E6 in the in the US uh, a little bit, and it was yeah. And it was a popular taxi for a lot of markets. And it had it used lithium, yeah, it used lithium phosphate batteries that were very low energy density, low cost, but very low energy density, and had a lot of problems because of it. And Tesla, you know, Tesla fans 
would talk a lot of smack about this, like a lot. <laughs> and and I mean, you know, Tesla had the Model S and the Model X later with high energy density batteries. And I mean, for years, it was kind of like this very big stigma on, on lithium phosphate batteries. And when battery Tesla battery day was coming up, we had a writer, uh, Dr. Maximilian Holland, who wrote that he thought he figured out what battery day would be about. And it would be about a shift to this lower cost, battery technology that had advanced a lot and that would be much lower cost, easier to secure. There's even charging advantages. And Elon responded, uh, no, that's not what battery day is going to be about, but it's actually a lot of really good points. And it was like six months or a year later when Tesla started making big deals by deciding to make some versions of their, of their vehicles use these lower energy density, but lower cost lithium phosphate batteries. So we've seen big changes in the battery industry already adapting to, you know, uh, nickel supply or just costs of, or cobalt. What's your takeaway on that specific chemistry and where it's going? And, uh, and then also just any other big chemistry kind of evolutions i mean you've touched on a few already but you know that the, but just sort of focusing in on that what are kind of thoughts on chemistry evolutions of course without a crystal ball but in the coming years okay well again someone that we both know well everybody knows elon's view on first principles look at what's what's available what what materials have we got and, and sort of work back from there that's something that uh, majibi jazz does very well by the way but uh, not i'm not going to go back over that again so sodium iron is going to definitely pick up quickly i think lower energy density than than lithium iron but nonetheless, for the right application, it will work. And I think where this then starts to come and answering your question is there is no one size fits all. There is no battery chemistry that that's the right one. That's where we should go. It depends. So as the global fleet, fleet shifts into electrification, it depends what the vehicle sector is, the duty cycle of that vehicle as to what's the appropriate battery chemistry. So I think LFP has come to the fore because people have realised you don't need three or 400 miles. You do in some places, some people do. The vast majority of people do not. So therefore, to reduce cost, to take away from that challenge of having to do with cobalt and nickel as well, extracting those two metals from uh, LIFP04, LIFPO4, lithium ion batteries, LFP batteries, then that, that makes complete sense. So it's a maturity of behavior an awareness of what a battery can actually do and perform. That's one thing. Sodium ion to try and move away a little bit from the utter reliance on lithium, for sure. Getting better aspects of the anode and, and blending more in um, away from the graphite in, in, in the anode to allow vehicles to either charge faster or to have better energy density. But all of these things are incremental uh, developments they're not they're not instant benefits but but i think fundamentally it comes back to you know the right fit what works best for a given situation and therefore you choose that so i think lfp is because there are more evs around and the more evs that people drive they realize they don't need three four five hundred miles and so so that's that's why that's coming out yeah i've uh, always been one i can't I can't relate to spending more for the long range version of EVs because I don't need anything more than, no. you know, than the, 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 the short range nowadays, which used to be long range, you know, 200 miles is like, you know, that's, that's, yeah. that's plenty. Well, let, let, let me tell you a quick story. Andy Palmer told me Dr. Andy Palmer, who was one of the, well, arguably the principal at Nissan for the leaf. He said some of their original discussions around what would the battery size be was 24 kilowatts. They believe that the optimum battery size is 24 kilowatts for weight, for cost and for range, but predicated on the way people drove in Japan, you know, what the journey times were in Japan and the belief that a good charging infrastructure could come relatively quickly in Japan. So, that that's interesting because you think just imagine if we had such a charging infrastructure and we could simply have 24 kilowatt hour batteries or there or thereabouts it completely changes the epic challenge of that raw material supply chain thing the number of gigafactories yeah. we need yeah. so on and so. 
So, and even then, think, and, and the other bit, because of course, Japan gets slated for all sorts of reasons, particularly Toyota at the moment. For, but I don't think some of this is, wouldn't necessarily say justified, but not particularly intelligent. Because if you think about it, what else did Nissan advocate and champion? Vehicle to grid. So Chadamo, as you know, because you've had EVs a long time, uh, Chadamo had within it, because it was mandated by the Japanese government, vehicle to grid, to manage grid stability, particularly in times of outages where you had some of these terrible things like the tsunami and the like. And, and so, yeah, it's sometimes we just need to look a little bit back behind us, a recent history, and learn some lessons. Because well, again, that... you know, that, that that's and look at where the world was with electric vehicles in the 1910s. Well, it's there funny that, lot... that that story about their expectations for what was needed. It just reminds me of economics courses in graduate school where you uh, where they emphasize people are not rational actors. Economics models almost you know they they to some extent always rely on the on the assumption that consumers are rational actors and it's just not true we are not rational <laughs> actors we no. don't make rational decisions as consumers often and it's hard to predict sometimes what those i think that's one thing elon's gotten really well is he's understood what people are going to believe or see as acceptable versus what what would be rationally fine or acceptable versus what people will actually feel comfortable with. And uh, but that, so I'll end with the the LifePo matter, which is one one huge benefit of LifePo batteries for me that I think is is huge is that you can charge them to 100% without really any concern of degradation. And there's there's a kind of there's a learning curve with going electric and people always ask, how much range does it have? How long does it take to charge? But then when you get into the kind of nuances of, oh, you should only charge 80%, man, people start to, their eyes glaze over. They get like, oh, this is beyond my, I can't I can't go electric yet because this is too technical or whatever. And it, it's just not a great conversation, a great thing to add to a conversation. So it's great if you have an EV with LifePo batteries that you charge to 100% every night and you never have to tell someone, oh, you should charge to 80% or whatever. So I think that's one of the benefits. And also it's it's going back to the rational actor matter. Technically, you know, you have more range there than the max range rating for, I mean, the max range rating for a non-LifePo EV is obviously it's, it's you know it's it's based on something but it's not the range yeah. you normally use because you wouldn't normally you charge to 100% with a life pro yes. battery the max range is really like the max range that you would use all the time because you would charge to 100% right but by the way i don't want to pick you up on it but i think it's life pro 4 the little 4 after the yes. after the yes. yes let's be technical <laughs> I'm not trying to be a, a no, no. Uh, we just use a short, uh, you know, the short point. N Nissan's original thought. Imagine if you had a mobile phone and you said you don't need, you only have to charge it once a month, and wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but it costs you another five hundred dollars. Oh, I don't want that. I'm quite happy to charge it every night. That's that's what I do. There you go. It's the same sort of argument in a way, but because it's easy to charge a phone, we just can plug it in wherever we are most of the time then 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 that's fine but but i suppose but until we get to that place then with evs or a sense of that place that people have with the confidence of owning one and driving one because again we know and most people know we've got an ev reality compared to perception is completely different the stories you hear and the perception of evs is they run out all the time you get stranded and it's a nightmare when you have an ev you occasionally have a problem you get quite pissed off and angry about it, but it's once in a blue moon. You never run out anywhere because you're not stupid, so you plan a bit. And, um, you know, it's it's completely different. But, of course, you know, we're, 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 in a, we're in a disruptive arena, disruptive technology with big industries that have been around for 100 years, the oil and gas industry, the auto industry. They're not just going to roll over and die. They're going to want to try and slow this down and get people to be a bit worried. But, you know, we're we're trying to reveal the truth. That's what you do yeah, at Clean Technica as well and does with fully charged what I try to do in my little LinkedIn world. And um, Huge LinkedIn world. Huge influence on LinkedIn. But, well, uh, yeah, that's we... all. It's... 
we will definitely this is a, a, a preview a taster for the ev charging episode we'll do next but yeah i think i think with the ev charging i've said for years the misconception is that ev charging is less convenient than going to a gas station when the reality is that one of the greatest benefits of an ev is it's more convenient than having to go to a gas station all the all the time so it's but we'll come back to that and get into wireless charging and grid serve and charging lounges and all this stuff in the next episode as long as roger's That's- schedule permits but we'll we'll make it happen and so yeah if you like this you know like us on on youtube on spotify on on apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening follow cleantechnica.com and roger atkins uh, where should people you just met where, where should people follow you oh just linkedin i don't do those other things twitter's scary linkedin, LinkedIn, is, can... LinkedIn is the and... beast this is the place you want to be and you were an early like linkedin is where i am and I was like, oh, that's great. That's a fine place. Now that's like, you really want to be a LinkedIn influencer in this world. So kudos to you. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So where do they find you on LinkedIn and all that? Uh, just, yeah, just put Roger Atkins in. But yeah, n- none of the others. I've got, I think I've got three or four followers on Top Tick, um, TikTok rather. Talk um, tick. <laughs> don't even know. Old. <laughs> I'm not on, I'm not on Top Tick or TikTok. I'm not on either of those. So. Don't bother. I I don't. But yeah, good. Zach, it's always great to catch up. I was wondering about you because we haven't spoken for ages. You don't send flowers. You don't write. You never. But there you go. We. I tried to connect with you to do this like so many months ago, and just uh, it's always one thing after another. I always am like barely getting my head above water, so it's always very difficult. But uh, we'll definitely follow up. Do the next episode on EV charging here in the next couple of weeks. So I'll ping you right after this. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, everybody. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.